Now, just going to talk briefly about this passage towards the end of Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World on this notion of scandal or scandalon, as the Greek text of the New Testament has it. So this is a particularly fascinating and memorable section of this book. And despite its brevity and relatively focused discussion of just this single term, it really encapsulates a great deal of Girard's thinking. And just as a side note there, as I've mentioned before, beginning with Deceit Desire in the novel, he tends to identify his thinking with the thinking of the text that he is working with. So if you recall, he essentially attributes to the novelists who he's discussing the revelations about um, the, the mimetic or triangular nature of desire that he is uncovering in that book. In other words, he he sees himself as merely articulating truths that are that are directly to be found in the text that he's working with. And similarly here, there's a kind of um, way that he's using this term scandal on to, to reveal that his thinking, that the core of his thinking about, about mimesis, desire, and violence is, is already embodied in the text of the Bible itself, right? And so what is the scandal on? Well, the scandal on is literally a, a stumbling block or a stone that you stumble over. And it's worth um, noting that it um, is related to something I've also talked about previously, and Gerard mentions this, that um, if you remember the uh, figure of the cripple or the the sort of limping man, right, as the typical um, image of the scapegoat in a great deal of myth, right, that, that you have this, this figure of the limping man as the one who kind of, um, through, his, through this minor difference, seems to polarize the violence of the society against himself. And I brought up this example from the TV show Downton Abbey, where you have a, a character, um, Mr. Bates, who is actually directly scapegoated on the basis of this, right? And so it's, it's a little bit curious to try to figure out this logic, right? But, but in a sense, the, um, the, the stumbling block, if it, if it sort of makes you stumble or limp, right, is, is something that um, could generate poten- the potential for a scapegoating, right? Or could generate a potential scapegoat. If I if I stumble over a stumbling block, then I potentially scandalize the others around me, such that they um, their violence is directed towards me, right? So that's that's kind of one interesting echo of previous discussions here. Um, another one is uh, something that came up already in Deceit Desire in the novel. Also is he brings up early on this notion of people becoming obstacle addicts. In other words, of people um, becoming fixated on things that are obstacles to them or that prevent the fulfillment of their desires. So, and that's specifically um, fixated on people who in some way seem to block them or to, um, to kind of get in the way of their, of their desires being achieved, right? So why would somebody be, become an obstacle addict? Well, the basic argument in Deceit Desire in the novel already is that you have this process of deviated transcendence, if you recall. In other words, this um, once our once we're looking horizontally rather than vertically, right? Once we move from external to internal mediation, we're just looking from side to side rather than up at some 
preordained um, superior model. We're looking for signs of of um, deservingness for our mimetic impulses, right? We're we're looking for how do we know what to imitate or what to um, what to see as superior to us, right? When we look, when we're just looking side to side at our peers and rivals and competitors. Well, perhaps simply the fact of it causing us um, to stumble, right? might be taken as a token of its superiority, right? Perhaps simply the fact that we um, stumble over this is itself part of what attracts us. Um, and this is, you know, where this um, deviated transcendence, right, of turning your equals into superiors, your fellow humans into gods, you know, becomes a kind of perversion, right? Because you take someone who, and this is not an unfamiliar phenomenon, right? It's like the person who rejects you, who turns you down, who treats you horribly, might be the one you're at you fall in love with, right? Or you might um, become kind of slavishly obedient to some authority figure um, who you've chosen, like imagine like a cult leader or a guru or something like this. If you think if you've, you know, watched any of these documentaries, right? Well, often these figures are very abusive, right? So people wonder, well, why, why do people continue to live in these communes or whatever if they're just being abused? Well, according to this account, perhaps it's the, it's this that endows them with this authority, right? In other words, by, by being um, cruel, supercilious, violent, um, you might be able to project a kind of superiority, right? And so the point is, um, when we're we're looking for things to imitate, we're looking for the right things that that signal to us some kind of superiority. It may be that actually um, finding that it it blocks us or prevents the fulfillment of our desire perversely becomes the thing that that endows it with a certain aura of superiority, right? And so this is what it means to be an obstacle addict, right? It means that you, you go for precisely the things that 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 reject you or that turn you down because you see them as as superior, right? Um, and so this is how, and you know, Gerard discusses this extensively in Dostoevsky and Proust, right? These these seemingly perverse characters, but shows that there is a logic to it along these lines, right? And and again, I don't think this is an entirely unfamiliar phenomenon in everyday life, even for people who aren't particularly, um, you know, given to, <laughs> given to bad sorts of attachments or joining cults. I mean, the, the one that strikes me is, um, why do we follow people on social media or on the internet who we find detestable, right? People are often unable to look away at the figures that they hate the most, right? And this is a very typical phenomenon on social media, right? Um, you know, you're familiar with the concept of hate reading and hate watching. Obviously, there's also the concept of hate following, right? So, um, you know, it would seem that there's some power that the person you hate follow has over you, right? As much as you deny it, it's as if you're bestowing them with a certain kind of power, simply by the act of not being able to refrain from following them, from retweeting them, even to just say, oh, how horrible and disgusting this person is. Um, nevertheless, that person in some way is dominating you, right? Because you're following them. And I think the supreme example of this in our time is, of course, uh, Donald Trump, right? Who um, had millions and millions of hate followers who, you know, spent every waking hour just monitoring every move on Twitter. 
And this meant that as much as they detested him, he managed to um, stand in a kind of superior... They, they implicitly endowed him with a kind of superiority, right? They implicitly made him into a kind of god. And so, in other words, just to return to the terminology of this passage, um, this was a situation of, of scandal, right? In other words, these people were scandalized. Donald Trump is the ultimate figure of scandal, right, in every sense. Um, and his followers were scandalized by him, which both meant that they were full of rage and disgust for him, but also that they could not look away from him for even a second, right? And so, and this is what has defined Donald Trump's entire career, right? Is being, he has masterfully played the role of the, the figure of scandal, right? The obstacle who could um, provoke these reactions, right? In his, in his followers and viewers, right? And so you don't have to be particularly liked or beloved in order to um, exert power in this kind of an economy of scandal, right? So going back to the original meaning, right? It's, it's um, you know, we, we might think of scandal in, in the way I've been describing it as almost visual phenomenon, right? It's this phenomenon of the gaze of being unable to look away, right? Of being transfixed by the spectacle of something that you find detestable and horrible and yet utterly fascinating. Um, but the stumbling block is, you know, quite a different original metaphor of this. And again, it, it suggests this, this problem, right, which is um, this, um, this obstacle, right, which because of the associations I suggested has this kind of implicit association with, with violence, right, with mimetic processes of violence. And so um, the scandal originally is the stumbling block, the Septuagint, um, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, you know, translates a Hebrew term this way, and then it continues to be used extensively in the, in the Gospels in the New Testament, right? And for Girard, this is the term that embodies um, both the, the function of um, mimetic rivalry of mimetic violence and the the processes that trigger that but also the the role that christianity itself comes to play in the world right so this is sort of a paradox of the concept so um you know we have repeatedly this these quotes that um christ you know tells um peter not to um become a scandal unto him, right? And things like that. So Christ is um, rejecting or, or trying to prevent the, um, the sort of uh, spilling out of mimetic conflict, right? Um, and so we have all of these, these ways that it's used, um, used to express this situation where one person becomes both an obstacle and an object of fascination to another, right? And um, the, Gerard says, scandal is always a relationship of doubles, and the distinction between the person provoking the scandal and the person undergoing it will always tend to vanish. The passive object of scandal becomes an agent of it and be contributes to its diffusion, right? So this this way that it becomes reversible because the scandal, the stumbling block metaphorically 
tends to mean a, another person, right? Another person who is a double, who is both the rival and the um, competitor, but the one from whom you can't look away. And so, you know, um, this famous line, as I mentioned before, where Jesus says, Get thee behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance for me. You are not on the side of God, but of men. Um, and uh, in fact, as Gerard points out, the literal translation is, You are a scandal to me, right? So um, Jesus here is insisting on the need to avoid letting someone become a scandal to them. And so he insists on the need to um, turn away, right? Um, Otherwise, this situation of mutual scandalization will simply escalate, right? And so this, um, this passage is interestingly placed within the section of Things Hidden, which you know, I suggest at some point you might be interested in reading in its entirety on interdividual psychology, right? And it's important to note that Girard's interlocutors in this book are two psychiatrists, and so this whole section kind of involves what he takes to be the implications of mimetic theory for um, psychiatry. And note this notion of interdividual, which is implicitly positing that, you know, the individual is a kind of illusion, right? The individual would be the figure of the romantic lie. And in fact, all psychology has to be interdividual because... Essentially, I don't develop a self except in relation to the other who I set as a model, right? Except in relation to the mediator. And so this, this um, term of scandalon is essentially a way of arguing that, you know, the biblical texts themselves have a sort of capacity to illuminate these, um, these psychological relationships between people, Right? And that there's a direct line between these psychological relationships, which, you know, we can say Girard first explores in Deceit, Desire, in the novel through fiction, and the um, larger processes of um, violent conflict resolution that he attributes to the scapegoat mechanism, right? And so scandal is is entirely part of this process because it escalates through the process of mutual scandalization. And then, as I mentioned before, the stumbling block is that which makes one member of the community stumble and thus attracts the violent unanimity of the rest of the community such that its violence can be polarized and discharged, right? So the, this figure of scandal, of, of the scandal on, keeps coming up through the different stages of this process, right? And then just to conclude here, um, this reversibility, right? Whereby the one who is scandalized can himself become a scandal to the other, um, and that there's an escalation. In turn applies to Christianity itself, which is, as these quotes suggest, uh, a religion or a kind of anti-religion that attempts to demystify these processes of scandalization, right? But in doing this, it itself becomes ensnared in these processes, and hence we have the situation that Girard describes here. 
Quote, the cross is the supreme scandal, not because on it divine majesty succumbs to the most inglorious punishment, quite similar things are found in most religions, but because the Gospels are making a much more radical revelation. They are unveiling the founding mechanism of all worldly prestige, all forms of sacredness, and all forms of cultural meaning. And so, in other words, Christianity becomes a scandal because it has taken away this sacrificial crutch, as he calls it. In other words, it has taken away the things that enabled humans to live together, and therefore it itself becomes something that needs to be um, attacked if by those who wish to fall back onto these sacrificial crutches, right? And so the scandalization then reasserts itself in the relationship between Christianity and its opponents, as well as between the um, the version of Christianity that opposes scandalization and then the later historical forms that reinstate it in one form or another. So again, I think this is one of the more fascinating passages in this quite long and dense book, Things Hidden, and um, I do, and it, it is more or less the concluding passage of the book, so I hope you found it as as uh, interesting and intriguing as I find it, and I look forward to discussing it and the rest of this with you.